Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Claudia Keller-Waisecki from the Institute of Molecular Biology in Mainz on this show. Claudia, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the Friedrich Miescher Institute in Basel in 2012. You then moved on to do a postdoc with Asifa Akta at the MPI of Immunobiology and Epigenetics in Freiburg. And since 2020, you are a group leader at the IMB in Mainz. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? That's indeed a very good question. And I also heard that you ask these questions to all your guests all the time. So for me, uh, this was not such a straight path, I have to say. Um, when I was a, a kid or a child, I always loved to read books about old Egypt. So I wanted to study uh, archaeology, actually. And I was really committed to go to Egypt and dig out everything from, from the sands, the pyramids and everything. But at the same time in school, I, I was always very good in math and then later in chemistry and physics. So I had kind of a natural, um, you know, affinity to the natural sciences. But I always hated biology. <laughs> and this is... Good start. <laughs> that's always uh, perhaps because of the way how biology was, was taught in in our primary and, and secondary school. And this was often, it was just collecting leaves in the, in the fields. And then we had to flatten them and glue them into a book, which is called the Herbarium, probably the yeah. German ones know this. And I was just not patient enough to flatten the, the, the leaves. And then this got wrinkles and all of this. So I didn't get good marks. And uh, I think it just never sparked my interest. And then I think a game changer was um, when I was in a gymnasium, where at the end in, in Switzerland, where, where I uh, grew up and went through my school years, where at the end you choose essentially in the last two years which subjects you want to study more. And because I was really interested in numbers and in math, I chose math. But I was the only one in the school that had chosen math. <laughs> so the math course didn't take place. And then they put sort of everybody that chose some sort of natural sciences, but didn't really fit. <laughs> so there were also students who chose chemistry. They, they put them into one course, which was a molecular biology course. And, and before that, I had never even thought about molecular biology really a lot. Yeah, and I think this was a game changer. So the, the teacher there was, was a molecular biologist by training, but then was biology teacher in school, but I, I never went to her. But in this course... She, she was really asking really fundamental questions about how DNA would be created. Um, so fundamental questions of life, how it would be generated, why would RNA be first, what are ribosomes and so on. And so this got me extremely excited in the topic. And then I, I started reading about it and I think I was perhaps 15 years old, 16 years old, so a rather late decision if you think. And then... Um, When it was about time to, to finish school and um, decide on what to study, I was considering chemistry and pharmaceutical science or, or molecular biology. And then I went to, to go to one of these university study visits. 
And I, I spoke to somebody, which I actually have no idea who he was, but he was uh, pipetting in the molecular biology lab and explained to me how exciting the research is that he's doing at the Biocentrum at that time in Basel. And then I think then the, the love was perfect. And I decided, no, what I wanted to really study was molecular biology. And then that was, was really a fantastic decision. And I think it fitted all, all my interests perfect in, in one single study degree. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, very interesting that there are two like genres of biology, right? There's like the, the, the leaf and, and, and animal biology and then the molecular biology, which we all love now. So it's, it's really interesting how this, this yeah, divides up the biology uh, field. The interesting part is now that, of course, I, I, I dived into um, biology being very much interested in two molecules and pathways and phosphorylations and so on. But now the, the more advanced I get in my career, the more I try to think actually again like a biologist. <laughs> and that's in a way uh, ironic because I'm going sort of back to the things that, that I didn't like to, to think about too much when, when I was a kid or an adolescent. Maybe we can move uh, to your science that centers around the biology of gene dosage, dosage alterations. Um, at the beginning of your research career, however, you focused on heterochromatin. And I want to um, start with a publication from the year 2012. Um, there you looked at the function of HP1 in heterochromatin. And uh, so can you maybe talk about what you did there and what you found? Yes, so um, I actually I did my PhD um, in Mark Bühler's lab at the FMI in Basel, and this is I, I think my my main work and most important work from from that time. And perhaps uh, that I can also give a personal anecdote on on that that PhD because also here it was a bit random how how I met Mark and how I decided to do a PhD in that field. And this is because when I go to a conference or when I, when I meet people, I always like to uh, meet new people and different people. And at that time, when this was 2007, 2008, I was a master's student at the FMI, but I was doing cancer research or something completely different. And then um, there was a, a hike at the <laughs> FMI, and I just decided to not go with my group, but just choose an, another hike. So we're, there were three different programs. And then I, I met this very young person there that I had never seen before. And I said, like, hi, so are you also a PhD student or a postdoc at the Institute? And he was like, ah, no, I'm going to have my own group <laughs> in January. Shall we talk about what I'm going to do? So this is the first time I, I heard about heterochromatin and, and RNA, actually. And then this is where I found it really cool topic, new topic, and they decided um, to work on that. Anyway, so um, with Mark, wh what we um, studied was actually a very interesting system where we uh, started from a phenomenon that is called um, or known as position effect variegation that is known for, for years in the field of heterochromatin. And what we had observed is that... what that when we chose a different reporter system than what people had classically used in the field. So at that time, most of the people used URA4, which is a, a marker gene that when you played these cells, they would die or not. So based on survival, you would score. Um, that when we replaced this marker gene just with a GFP and we looked for the uh, fluorescence, the results were actually quite different to what we have to observe with another market gene. And for a long time, there were uh, we were thinking, okay, maybe there is something wrong with the system and so on. But we validated and validated and validated. And it made us realize that the results are actually correct. And there are two types of repressive mechanisms. So one is actually at the transcriptional level, where it's really the, the transcription and the heterochromatic state really doesn't allow polymerase to, to transcribe a gene. But there seemed to be a second layer of repression where you would see transcription and RNA being produced. 
However, this RNA would never make it into a functional protein. And that's why we could not score it in, in the GFP um, fluorescence. And that was a very curious um, observation that, that we followed up with, with many experiments. And, and actually, we wanted to really figure out how, how does it work that, that a heterochromatic state then can repress a gene in these two different fashions. So one, on the one hand, transcriptionally, but then also at the RNA level. So we were looking for a protein that would, on the one hand, recognize the chromatin state, but then can also bind RNA and then selectively degrade it. And, and we found that gene, so that's the, the HP1 gene. And in the work, I, I could actually show that HP1 um, RNA binding is really important for um, this degradation of the heterochromatic um, transcript, providing this, this second layer of protection um, um, to a genome. And I think the work was also important because actually if we tend to think about genetic screening, our ultimate readout is very often a protein. So also nowadays, when we do genetic screens, we, we score, for example, fluorescent proteins or reporters, but hardly any screen actually screens at the RNA level. And for this reason, um, we uh, might actually miss many of the of the factors that contribute to, to gene repression and heterochromatin at at the second level. Yeah, this uh, you also followed up, um, if you're not talked about this already, <laughs> uh, on the role of non-coding RNAs in heterochromatin, right? How they can influence and counteract um, heterochromatin, maybe also uh, your chromatin and how the borders are, are designed. Um, what did you do there and what did you learn from it? So that was actually uh, the result of a very, very nice collaboration with uh, an NMR lab at the Biocentrum um, in, uh, in Basel also, um, which, um, where, we, where we purified the HP1 um, proteins and we incubated these proteins together uh, with RNA. And we wanted to look at what happens um, to the protein. And what was a big surprise is that not only the domains that we pinpointed before by, by genetics and biochemistry that would bind RNA directly would be affected by the RNA binding. But however, we could also observe that the chromodomain would be affected. And the chromodomain is the module that binds the H3K9 uh, methylated uh, residues. And, uh, and what we could show is that when the HP1 molecules or the Y6 molecule binds to RNA, the chromatin, uh, the conformation of the chromodomain is changed in a way that it is not compatible with binding anymore from to the H3K9 trimethylated peptide. So we came up with this model that RNA binding, you know, evicts the HP1 protein. Um, from the chromatin, and then it, it signals to the RNA decay machinery to degrade those transcripts. And that, of course, provided an, an, an interesting mechanism of how genes or, or regions in the genome that are highly transcribed could perhaps surface boundary regions to prevent the spreading um, of, of the heterochromatin regions. And that we showed actually then in, in the follow-up um, mm -hmm. paper where we could show that certain um, transcribed elements would, would serve as boundary elements. You then moved on to the lab of Asifa Akta and shifted gears a little bit, maybe not so much because it's still RNA work. <laughs> um, you're still focused also on heterochromatin, but moved into the space of dosage compensation. Um, in the first publication, out of your postdoc years, more or less, you looked at the function of MSL2. So before we dive into the, the science and your projects, um, how did you decide where to do your postdoc? So was it again 
a game of chance that you met Asifa somewhere and then <laughs> decided to go for it or uh, what was the decision path? So here, um, I think I started to to think about what uh, what I wanted to do in my my postdoc, perhaps one year before I, I left Basel and and Mark's lab, and I knew that um, I wanted to to have a career in science. So I knew that it would be also important to change country. So that, of course, uh, was a first uh, thing that I had in mind. But I also have a partner that is not in science. So I also knew that it would not be possible to go to the US and so on. So my, my search rather was sort of restricted. And then I also uh, knew that I wanted to learn uh, new models. So multicellular models. So I really wanted to move away from from the yeast system, but to somewhere where I could um, combine also strong tools of genetics, because of course yeast is very powerful for that. And then I thought, okay, uh, Drosophila would be extremely um, cool. Um, so I was looking around for questions that that would interest me, and I, I just found um, dosage compensation as a mechanism which is orchestrated by non-coding RNAs and, and chromatin-related um, pathway extremely fascinating. And this, this fascination uh, continues up to today. And then, of course, the, the lab of Asifa was, was very quickly uh, um, popping up. And then I, I visited her, her lab and, and her personally, and I, I found the, the communication with her very direct. And, and um, I was also impressed by, by her fast way of thinking. So that was something that was very stimulating for me. And I thought, well, that's, that's the environment where, where I want to go um, on top of, of course, the, the, the nice infrastructure, the core facilities and everything that, that you need to be uh, successful in science. In, in Freiburg, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so Asifa had just moved to, to Freiburg oh, and yeah. had, uh, had a lot of space and, and resources and, of course, was, was very happy to, to expand. Yeah. yeah. So what did you then found about the MSL2? So... Um, Actually, they started with a lot of, of failed experiments. Perhaps you also noticed that the, the, the lag time between my PhD <laughs> and my postdoc in the publication list is, is a bit long. Um, and that had to do that my initial project was a biochemical one. So I, I really wanted to work on, on this complex from, from a biochemical point of view and, and purify all the subunits and really ask what do these um, uh, members do to transcription. And when I tried to do that, um, I realized that some proteins are, are just very difficult, um, and including MSL2. So this was the most problematic one. But I also realized without MSL2, this is for the bin, because this is the, the most important protein to understand dosage compensation. Um, so yeah, the, the years went. I was also doing some, some functional work in, in parallel, trying to express this protein. And I realized that it's actually the Drosophila protein that has weird properties. When we would um, start to, to work with the mammalian proteins, they would be biochemically much easier. But of course, the mammalian proteins, they are not involved in chromosome-wide dosage compensation, so this twofold upregulation of the X, uh, which I was really interested in understanding. So um, at some point, I think I was giving a bit up on the biochemistry and, and started to think about this problem from, from a different angle, and um, that was the moment where, where I teamed up with my colleague Felicia, who's, who's a long-term uh, collaborator and scientific partner of mine, and um, where we started to, to think, so if we cannot do this 
biochemistry completely purified, maybe we can just see what happens when we take the Drosophila components and we put them in the mammalian system. And this turned out to be extremely um, fruitful and extremely um, interesting. So was this like a project, uh, before we move on, um, that is the classical high-risk, high-reward kind of thing that, that you started out and it didn't go anywhere? Or, or how would you describe that? So the biochemistry project was definitely a high-risk, high-reward project and it didn't work out <laughs> at all. Um, so And that was, was also good in a way for me also to, to learn, also to deal with uh, having to, to end something um, and um, yeah, get, get over it. And yeah, of course, the, um, the this domain hybrid system was was very challenging project that initially uh, many people also in our own group didn't really believe that it would lead to um, some phenotypes or it would work. But uh, in these moments, it's always cool to have a, a scientific partner on your side that that believes in you, and and together we were really really convinced that this would work, and. I think uh, really there were like two really uh, super cool moments is when when for the first time we we had this 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 domain that we pinpointed made the biochemistry and made this this protein become really difficult when we put this domain in the mouse context and we added the non-coding RNA in a specific location and this led to the upregulation of that gene that was really a very cool moment for sure and and the second one was actually an experiment that I didn't want to do <laughs> So uh, my, my Felicia and myself, we, we discussed that experiment and, and Felicia did it anyways, although I was kind of against doing it, I, I didn't see the point. And this is when we observed that in the mammalian system, we could kind of create mini territories consisting of, of ROCs RNA, um, which is the non-coding RNA that promotes binding of the MSL complex to the X chromosome. So if this Drosophila RNA in the mouse system would, would make these small bar-like bodies and that was really really amazing I, I still remember when she called me from the microscope and <laughs> showed me the picture this was was really a fantastic moment so maybe we can one last question to this um so it's always hard to say well I, i need to change directions right so how did you approach this and did you set yourself like a deadline and saying well i, I try this for like two more months or something like that and then just drop it and and focus on the other path or happened it more naturally so uh, it didn't happen very naturally. And uh, also, again, here, Felicia, I think, was critical in telling me, I think now uh, we, we don't do it this way, we, we do it another way. And I should say, maybe I also said that on other occasions and the other way around. But I really think that is is working together with other people and, and critically thinking with two brains, this is absolutely crucial in, in science. Okay, let's move on to talk further about MSL2. Um, you investigated the function of MS MSL2 further in the context of RNA nucleation of selective X chromosome compartmentalization. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so was this already the, the thing you talked about on the microscope or was this then later on? Yeah, I mean, this was uh, is just one part of, of a whole bigger uh, uh, project, I would say, that took us a lot of time to yeah to get it completed but i think it's, it's really really interesting but yes what what we show in that paper is that the this this difficult biochemical domain so this we call it the c-terminal domain that has these really aggregating properties together with rocks rna functions like two component glue we say that you know from the baumarkt one and one is not doing anything but when they come together they can really make a very very stable um compartment 
Um, and, and it was really quite exciting to see that it really in a minimal system in the mouse embryonic stem cells, these two components alone can, can reconstitute partially the phenomena. Um, finally, and I'm always thinking which fly species you would like select and, and which one you would go for because everybody's working on Drosophila, but you also worked on dosage compensation in Anopheles. So why would you compare those two? Uh, what was the motivation behind the study and what did you then find in comparing those? So um, the motivation to go to Anopheles is actually an evolutionary one. And here I have to, to get a, a step back. So the sex chromosomes, they evolve from autosomes. So they have some gene content on, on them that, that are also present in autosomes in the ancient species. So if you start from, from a pair of autosomes and then the sex differentiation and, and, and so on evolves, then one of the two chromosomes becomes generated. In the human case, this would be the Y and the X chromosome um, is maintained. Now, obviously, if we ask ourselves, If we compare dosage compensation mechanism between um, human, mouse, uh, Drosophila and C. elegans, they are very different. So in, in the human system, you have X chromosome inactivation and concomitant upregulation of the X in the males. In the fruit flies, we only have the X chromosome um, upregulation in the males with this H4K16 acetylation in the mammalian system exists is with repressive complexes involved. So this is really quite quite distinct in the C. elegans system. We see uh, yet another system with this twofold um, dampening in, in on both axes with the contents in uh, subunits. Now, of course, the, the sex chromosomes in these three species is, are extremely different. So you could just think naively that it's the, the genes that are on a given chromosome that drive whether a given mechanism evolves or not. Um, and to, to look at this, what you need to do is you need to compare two species where the X chromosomal genes are comparable. So the genes that are on the X in, in mouse human and the genes that are on the X in Drosophila completely different, right? And that was the case for the mosquitoes. And that's uh, why we sta uh, started looking at the roles of H4 lysine 16 acetylation and MSLs in mosquitoes. Um, and what was a big surprise is that it's actually two completely different mechanisms in these species. So naively would assume, okay, if it's the same genes on the X chromosome, the same ancient autosome that evolves to become a sex chromosome, you would have the same mechanism that promotes dosage compensation. What we discovered is that this is not the case. So H4K16 lysine 16 acetylation is not enriched on the male eggs of the mosquitoes. And we also found that the MSL uh, gene, so MSL2 in particular, if you knock it out, it, it has a completely different phenotype from, um, from Drosophila. And that was, was quite intriguing because it suggested that this, this dosage compensation mechanism, they can evolve much faster than we probably thought of. Um, just to give a perspective, so mosquitoes and, and um, Drosophila, they're both insects, they're both dipterans, so relatively closely related. They undergo similar life stages, so they have embryonic stages, larval stages, pupa stages, adults, so um, they lay eggs and, and so on. So it's really quite comparable um, and that was, that's why this, this was quite an interesting work. And uh, what were the results that you found? More, more detailed? 
So in the end, um, we <laughs> the, what we found is for the roles of, of MSLs in particular, that they rather seem to play a role in, in gene dosage balancing, which is a bit akin to, to what also uh, Sifa was talking about today for the mammalian system. So we found that, that some dosage-sensitive genes, developmental regulatory genes, are um, buffered by um, MSL proteins. Now, when it comes to what mediates dosage compensation in uh, mosquitoes, this is actually something that um, I, I followed up um, with a PhD student in our team. And um, this is what I'm going to present tomorrow <laughs> at the conference. <laughs> so uh, we think we, we have an answer to that question. Yeah, and since you're, you mentioned it now, um, since 2020, you lead your own group um, at the IMB in Mainz, as I uh, mentioned in the introduction. So the obvious question is, what is it that you're focusing on right now? Do you have something in the pipeline? Is something on BioArchive already? Um, yeah, what is your, or what are your plans maybe, let's say, for the next five years? So uh, the group is um, interested in um, gene dosage as an overall um, overarching team that I would say, and this is, of course, a very broad team. Um, but I would say um, the team is sort of um, um, building up on two different pillars. So on the one hand is um, evolutionary epigenetics. And here we are particularly interested in, in the questions like I told you before, why are there um, these differences in, in dosage compensation mechanisms? There are so many sex differences in nature. They are is a very dynamic um, system. In some species, you have environmental control of sex uh, determination. What what does that mean for the gene regulatory mechanisms in the two sexes? Um, so um, we are trying to understand really from the molecular mechanistic point of view how how this works. And, and currently we have projects in um, mosquitoes and in Artemia franciscana, which is a, a crustacean species. Um, and, and we are trying to, to uncover uh, really novel principles of, of this regulation. Um, and then on the other hand, um, we are also interested in um, um, gene dosage regulation in um, mammalian system with regards to development and, and disease. And here we are uh, currently looking at um, human and mouse stem cell models where we try to un understand um, sex differences in development and also certain diseases. That sounds uh, very interesting. And what is the... Let me wrap my head around it. <laughs> so so uh, when you uh, the model system that you choose, um, so you obviously the cell culture with the mouse and the human system is relatively easy to handle. And how is it compared to, to the, the Drosophila work? So we are not doing Drosophila work anymore yeah, at but, all. But, but for the mosquitoes, we are uh, collaborating with um, the group of, of Eric Marua in Strasbourg. So that's for all the transgenic okay. mosquito work. Um, but we also have a cell culture model for, okay. for the mosquitoes where we do more of the, the genomics assays that we are doing in the lab. For um, the Artemia work, actually uh, a super good um, and really brave PhD student in our group set it up from scratch. And um, this has actually worked um, amazingly well. So uh, he now, is now growing these Artemia in uh, actually in the fish facility of the institute um he's also um managing the rearing the feeding and so on of of these species and um it's going really well and he's also really excited what 
what perhaps helps is that on, on campus there is a, is a network, a research training group of the DFG, where many um, different groups from university and, and IMB are embedded and they work all on different um, species and, and non-model organisms as well. And then it always helps to, to exchange a bit on, on the challenges and so on. But I, I would like to say that uh, both both me and Felicia, who are are behind uh, the ideas that that drive our lab, we we are not driven sort of by by the the the, the technicalities to to when it comes to pursuing a project, but rather we we usually have an idea about a biological phenomena that we would like to understand, and then we are trying to choose the right experimental system. Um, to address it, so so it's usually the, the the other way around. So we are trying to to understand a given question, and then we say, okay, actually by studying this and this and this, um, this could be um, fruitful. So yeah. So in the last almost thirty minutes, we have taken a quick journey through your scientific career. Um, maybe can you give us a short summary about your most important findings? If you look back and 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 look at the whole, or something that we not or we might have missed in this interview. So I would say uh, my first most important finding was during my PhD um, to really uncover the molecular mechanism of HP1 binding uh, to uh, RNA binding to HP1, what, what it really does. Um, I think this has really changed um, the view of, of many people in the field that work with chromatin um, chromatin related complexes and the mode they, they interact with RNA. And I think this work has been not only important for the fission yeast heterochromatin field, but also for, for mammalian, where we know that all these repeat elements are transcribed and in, in heterochromatin what they do, but also for the pi RNA field where you need transcription to create pi RNA precursors, but also then silence, um, silence these, these corresponding lo loci later on. Then I would say for um, for my postdoctoral uh, work, I would say that the discovery of me and my colleague Felicia that the RNA actually guides the specificity towards a given chromosome was important for, for our field because for a long time people have really entertained the DNA sequence-based um, model which which couldn't really um, explain why this complex preferentially uh, binds to the X chromosome. So how it can distinguish the X from from the autosomes, and I think this nicely illustrates gene regulation more more globally. So when we look at where transcription factors binds in the genome, and where there is a given motif, that usually doesn't match. So when we just search for say, CT, uh, GAGA factor motif in the genome, then it, you will find it everywhere. But the, the complexes, they know very precisely where to go. And for the X chromosome, it was quite clear that it needs this helper molecule, so this RNA that helps Amosyl to, to find its proper targets and stabilize it and, and really create the environment for stable association. So I think that work from that perspective was was really important. And now I, of course, hope that with the work that we are doing in, in our group, that it will also contribute to, to a better understanding of, of how genes work. On, on, on the one hand, in the evolutionary projects, we really hope to discover very many new things, uh, new principles of how genes are regulated. And for the more applied mammalian projects to re eventually understand why there's uh, such big differences between sexes, for example, in, in diseases also during the aging process. So thank you, Claudia, for your time and for being on this show. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.